Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and I'm going to be taking you through the papers that are appearing in the May 2017 journal of the Emergency Medicine Journal. Another great month in the journal, lots of interesting things to do, lots of practical stuff which can make you be a better clinician. Spring in the UK has finally sprung. I'm sat here in the glorious sunshine in Manchester and I guess we're going to see some changes in pathology coming through our doors soon, or perhaps not. And around this sort of time of year, we think, well, maybe the winter pressure is going to disappear. Yeah, but if 2016 was anything to go by, that may not be happening. So we're going to have to be good. We're going to have to be slick. We're going to have to do as well as we can with the resources that we have. And the MJ recognises that. So there's a couple of things we're going to kick off with this month around pregnancy. And the first is to look at a paper from Bataloglu and Porter looking at the, well, the background, the when, the how, the who, the why to do resuscitative hysterotomy in the emergency department. And let's face it, the the prospect of a late pregnancy lady arriving in the emergency department in cardiac arrest and having to do what is essentially a fairly fairly aggressive manoeuvre to deliver the baby precipitously in the ED with a resuscitative hysterotomy it's the sort of thing you really need to stop and think about now to get your head around how you're going to do it now not on the day because there won't be time on the day to go and have a look at a guideline you need to this is one of those pieces of information that you need to have at the tip of your fingertips so that you know in advance what to do so it's a nice article that goes through the evidence base for it which isn't you know particularly fantastic but is definitely worth a read and I think anybody who is a team leader in the resuscitation rooms of an emergency department really needs to have this in the back of the head, needs to know what to do, when and how. Something we've thought about a lot in the past as a major trauma centre for taking all the obstetric trauma in my region. And I think it's not just you, have a read of the article and then share it. Because if you ever have to do this in real life, it's going to be quite tough on the entire team. So anyway, have a read of that. It's good stuff. And in a similar vein, really, we've got the latest guideline from the Faculty of Pre-Hospital Care, one of their consensus documents on the management of traumatic pregnancy and obstetric complications. And that's pretty good. It takes you through the evidence. Interestingly, the evidence base for a lot of this sort of stuff is, is pretty poor, largely because there isn't a lot of obstetric trauma out there, thankfully. But what there is, summarised in this article reasonably well, The challenge I think that they've had is to how to extrapolate information from non-pregnant studies into the pregnant population. And again, it's the sort of thing you need to sort of stop and think about now. And although this is pre-hospital care, it will be entirely relevant to anybody who works in the emergency department because unsurprisingly, many of the patients who are seen by pre-hospital physicians end up in the emergency department. I find it strange that people find this surprising. Um, We all are part of the same team so we should pretty much know what's going on in those different areas regardless of where you happen to work so get a get a read of those those will be interesting particularly if you see pregnant patients and even if you don't because even if they send them to your local obstetric and gynecology department the really sick ones will come to you anyway go off read it and when next right cadavers and carbon dioxide one of the things we've really picked up on over the last few years is the importance of measuring end tidal co2 in critically unwell patients and we use it now as a function of cardiac output and um, respiration of course and it's one of those markers that we know that somebody's getting better or return of spontaneous circulation is likely to have occurred or about to occur is it changes in entitled co2 so it's really part of the essential component of what we do in the emergency department now so you wouldn't expect to get a waveform from somebody who is clearly dead you really wouldn't but 
interestingly, Cliff Reed and colleagues, when they were doing some cadaver courses, um, put the end tidal CO2 monitor on. These are definitely dead people, definitely dead people, and unexpectedly found a persistence in the detection of end tidal CO2 waveforms from some of the cadavers. And that was quite persistent in some of the cases, which again is really surprising. And I don't know what to, to make of this one, really. I'm not sure the practical implications of it, but it does kind of make you stop and think. And um, interestingly, they didn't get any CO2 back from esophageal intubation, and it was only for when the, the trachea got intubated. Um, but it is a bit unclear. I'm not sure what this means for clinical practice, because I would hope that uh, it's not going to take a massive change to what we do, and there may be some other mechanisms why CO2 is being produced. But have a look at that, because it does sort of kind of question many of the assumptions that we've made around the presence of CO2 in a live patient. From there, and again, sticking in the resource room, really, um, about the use of remifentanil for procedural sedation in paediatric practice. Now, that's an interesting one for me. We use quite a lot of remifentanil now as an analgesic to support our sedation processes in patients who've been intubated in the ED. So if you're an intubated patient in my ED, we make sure that we get you onto some analgesia, fentanyl, alfentanil, or increasingly remifentanil infusions alongside something like propofol. This is actually looking at a systematic review on the evidence of just using remifentanil itself in paediatric care sedation. And there, there's some reasonably good reasons why you might want to use remifentanil in the ED for procedural sedation. If it works as a sedative drug, great. It's an extremely good analgesic, great. It works pretty quickly, great. And it turns itself off pretty quickly, great. Or maybe you need to get some baseline analgesia or sedation in there perhaps to work with it. So an interesting systematic review. Certainly it's not something I've used before. Bottom line is, well, it seems to be fairly attractive from a pathophysiological point of view, but may not be ready for prime time yet. And maybe it's something that we might get to see some more better designed randomized controlled trials out there. Next, we're going to have a look at a paper on heart rate volatility. And I think this might be a record, uh, certainly perhaps an EMJ, or maybe somebody will correct me. But this is an interesting paper looking at heart rate variability scores. And the, the record thing is about the fact that they analysed about 7 million data points to get this study. So small prize, gold star, for doing the massive amount of data analysis. And this was looking at 2,000 odd, 2,051 patients in the ED. And looking at how the heart rate varied. So do you have a fixed heart rate and it's just banging along at the same level? Or is it going up and down? And they used a proxy marker, really, of admission to the high dependency unit as a marker of serious illness. And what they found is that heart rate variability, when it's low, is associated, and I think it's as strong as you can say, really, with an increasing likelihood of you getting onto HDU. Now, this is a bit of news to me, I've got to say, but there's a reasonable evidence base out there that autonomic nervous system variability might actually be a marker of critical illness. And although I don't think this is you know, super ready for prime time yet, I think it's an interesting one to look at. And again, it's one of those messages that you get in emergency medicine again and again and again and again, that single observations are interesting, but nowhere near as useful as looking at multiple observations. And this variability thing is a new one to me, but have a look at that and see what you think. Next, I think we've got to recognise that there's a huge enthusiasm, particularly in social media circles, for extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or eCPR at the moment. And honestly, if you hang out on Twitter, you think that 
gosh, everybody's getting ECMO or ECPR for absolutely everything, uh, sprained ankles, put them on ECMO. I don't know. It seems crazy at the moment, but it is particularly exciting and there are some huge advocates out there. And in theory, it makes a lot of sense, really. So it's really good to see in the EMJ this month a more measured appreciation of ECPR in the ED, looking at the evidence. So this is Shoura et al. looking at data on the use of ECPR in their ED. And it's interesting, really. They've got an ECPR program, but they've only really found seven patients over 10 years that they've done this in. And I think that's really, really interesting because that's been one of the things that we've been thinking about in the UK is ECPR, ECMO and things like that in the ED have the potential to be really exciting and really interesting. But do we have the numbers coming through the door to make it valid and and reliable? I know that there's some pre-hospital services that can carefully select patients and go to them, and that's a different thing. But from an ED perspective, this is a this is going to be a bit of a challenge. It's a systems issue as much as it is a medical issue. So there's a link commentary, actually, which I'd also advise you to go and read by Callaway and Sunder. And they, again, they've looked at the detail. And I think the evidence for widespread adoption of ECPR or an ECMO, for me, it's not there yet but I think we do need to see some better design prospective trials around this. And I know that there are some planned or some in the early stages at the moment. So watch this space. If you're ECMO and ECPR, fantastic. Um, it's really interesting. And I think we do need to push the envelope of resuscitation. If you're ECNO, ECNO, get it? Then maybe, well, you can sit on the fence for a little bit longer. But watch this space. There's definitely more to come. We should also look this month at survivability from traumatic cardiac arrest. And we've had a few papers around this over the last year or so. And I've seen some really interesting stuff presented at conferences. But Ahmed and colleagues have examined data from the US Trauma Data Bank and looked at the survivability of traumatic cardiac arrest, which when I was growing up, when I was a medical student, was always said, well, you know, if you die, well, that's it. You die. If you're traumatic cardiac arrest, the possibility of surviving is virtually zero. But actually, the data increasingly shows that that's not the case. And they've got a 13% survival rate of people who underwent CPR surviving to hospital discharge, which is fantastic. And I think the good outcomes are this really tell us that we can't be nihilistic about treating traumatic cardiac arrest. And good outcomes are possible if we aggressively seek them and treat reversible causes. And there's a colleague of mine from the Great North Air Ambulance, colleague's friend, Twitter friend, that I know from the Great North Air Ambulance that says a quote, I can't remember what it's like now, but it's something like, don't believe that your traumatic cardiac arrest patient in PEA is in cardiac arrest. It's just a low flow state. Work on them like a ninja. And I quite like that. Basically, don't give up. Go for it. Look for treatable causes and aggressively manage this group of patients. Then lastly, and I suppose after another tough winter in the UK, we're going to talk about flow through the ED. So this is Barrett Cohen and colleagues in Israel have used data that's readily available in the ED from most places, if you've got electronic records, certainly, and looking at whether or not we can predict the disposition of ED patients early. So in contrast to many studies in this area, they've investigated a progressive prediction model that alters the certainty of disposition at three time points during the patient's journey. And I quite like this. We've done this with chest pain assessment, but basically the probability of something happening changes as you get more information. So your probability of getting it right at the front door is different after you've got the blood results back, that kind of stuff. Um, it's interesting. They claim that they've got a predictive model that can improve flow, but I'm not sure they've tested that to its entirety as yet. But with all systems that I know of around the world facing difficulties with flow, then it's worth a read. 
So have a look at all those papers, have a look at all the other stuff in there as well. Obviously the best bets, the editorial comments, images, quizzes, and all that kind of stuff that you want to have a look at. Make sure you subscribe to us on Twitter. Have a look at us on the Facebook page. Keep downloading the podcast and keep in touch. We want to hear more from the readers. We want to hear more from authors and basically improve EMJ and emergency medicine as a clinical specialty as best we can. So that's me. I shall speak to you again in June. Have fun.